views and opinions expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI talk shows, log on to our website and check out our latest programming guide at KUCI.org. You're listening to this May 8, 2014 edition of Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org, and we're available via podcast, both on KUCI's website and at www.kimberlymartin.com. I'm your guest host, Marie Stone. Kimberly Martin is out this week, and I'm pleased to be able to slide into her seat for the hour. This show is an informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. The guests on this show are all people who serve the community in a meaningful capacity, and today is no exception. I will caution you that we're going to be covering a dark and admittedly disturbing topic of human trafficking today. We're uh, staying well within the FCC guidelines, but the subject is inherently um, a little disturbing to some, perhaps, so we're going to put on our listener discretion rules. If, you, uh, if you've been following the news at all in the last few weeks, you will have heard of the tragedy unfolding in Nigeria. To bring you a little up to speed, if you aren't already, on April 14th, more than 300 Nigerian girls were kidnapped from their school. According to accounts, uh, members of Boko Haram overpowered security guards in an all-girls school in Chibuk, yanked the girls out of bed, forced them into trucks. The convoy of trucks then disappeared into a dense forest. 276 remain in captivity, 53 escaped. Uh, Were that not bad enough, this past Sunday night, May 4th, at least eight girls between the ages of 12 and 15 were kidnapped from the village of Warabi. Gunmen moved from door to door late Sunday night, snatching the girls and beating anybody who tried to stop them. Um, CNN reports that this group, uh, Boko Haram, translates to Western Western education is a sin. And uh, they're an Al-Qaeda-trained militant group who has declared they are selling the girls into slavery, sexual slavery, or marriage. Um, though I heard that this morning even Al-Qaeda is not condoning these kidnappings. So when you know when, uh, when uh, you've disgusted Al-Qaeda, you're really, you're really on to something. <laughs> uh, there's now a Twitter campaign called Bring Back Our Girls that has quickly spread with demonstrators taking to the streets over the weekend in major cities around the world to demand action. The Obama administration has pledged military and law enforcement aid. So this latest news is unfortunately just the most recent example, albeit, you know, an extreme and stunning example of a problem that has been growing steadily for a number of years. Joining me today in studio is Lee Dundas, Orange County resident and general counsel to the A21 campaign to talk about the growing problem of human sex trafficking, not only abroad, not only in Nigeria, but certainly across Asia and even right here in the U.S., Indeed, in some cases, even in Orange County. Lee has spent the bulk of the 1990s doing high-tech environmental and business litigation for Irel and Manila. Uh, And she and I spent the early 2000s when we both worked at Brobeck together. And she's now general counsel for the A21 campaign, which seeks to abolish slavery in the 21st century. Lee, welcome. Thank you, Marie, for having me. Thanks for coming on. So let's start by you giving us a chance to tell us how you got into how you got into the subject, how you got into human trafficking. Well, I've always been very interested in gender inequality issues, excuse me, and um, issues concerning women, issues concerning children, um, inequality generally in society. And trafficking perhaps represents the worst cross-section of things that one human being can do to another human being. 
So it's it's always been an interest of mine since I would say college era. Um, last year, my husband and I were traveling through Southeast Asia, through Australia and New Zealand, and I decided at that point that life does not go on forever, and if you wanted to actually do something with the time you have here on Earth, that there was no time like the present. I reached out to some anti-trafficking organizations in that region, uh, ended up through sort of a coincidence coming into contact with the A21 campaign, who was in Southeast Asia at that point to begin looking at rolling out a Southeast Asian initiative and operation in that part of the world. They had gotten their start in 2008 doing anti-sex trafficking work in uh, Eastern Europe. And I came into contact at that point with the founder, Kane and some of the other executive crew that were there. I was very much a fan of how they approached the subject, of the gains that they had made on the issue. Um, they were awarded by the State Department about a year ago for their work in human trafficking. And it just became a natural fit. And by the time I got home, I was unofficially working for them. And now, of course, I'm officially working for them. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Could not be a more worthy way to use a law degree, actually. <laughs> I would concur, but then I'm a little biased. <laughs> so it feels like this is getting to be a worse problem. But then, it, you know, it's always that that issue of are we less safe in in current times than our parents and grandparents were? Or do we just hear about it more? It's, but it, it feels like it's getting worse. I think, in fact, it is getting worse. The statistics indicate that it is getting worse. Um, but the perception is also that it's getting worse. And of course, that has something to do with the availability of the internet, radio, TV, mm -hmm. smartphones that download media content minute by minute. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact of the matter is that human trafficking is quite a phenomenal problem. Uh, it is the second largest criminal economy in the world right now behind drugs. It is hands down the fastest growing criminal economy in the world. World. There are more people enslaved today than at any other point in human history. Uh, there are currently 27 million people, by most experts' estimates, people enslaved uh, worldwide. And to put that in perspective for our listeners, it would be the equivalent of taking every single person in Texas right now, which has a population of about 26 million, and instantly, and in a New York second, enslaving them and adding one or two million to the top of that. By and mm. large, the, um, the victims are female. 80%, you know, the United Nations reports that come out say that 80% worldwide are female. 20% uh, by that same study are children, although that's a bit of a misleading statistic because when you go into the darker corners of the world, for instance, Nigeria, Africa, certain areas of the Mekong Delta, Southeast Asia region, the numbers rapidly approach 100% child sex trafficking and child labor trafficking problem. Yeah, I was going to ask what percentage of these are sex traffickers versus, um, you know, other industries. Yeah, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime published a study a couple of years ago, so it's it's not even the most up-to-date stats, and it indicated that 79% of the cases of trafficking worldwide were probably sex trafficking or related to sex trafficking right. to some degree. Um, and it's it's really a huge problem because labor trafficking, and this is not to... Uh, minimize the issue of labor trafficking. It is in and of itself an abhorrent crime. It is still the deprivation of somebody's liberty. Um, but at the end of the day, the primary threat to a person who has been labor trafficked is A, their deprivation of liberty, and B, the fact that they might, they might become executed or have some sort of dangerous thing befall them. Sex trafficking, because of the spread of HIV and AIDS, is a bit of a different creature. When you have a child 
in particular in the Southeast Asia region or anywhere in the world who is sex trafficked, the likelihood of viral transmission of HIV is incredibly high. Mm. And there are statistics in certain border towns in Southeast Asia that indicate that for every new batch of girls that comes in, they turn over maybe every three to six months, and the vast majority of them by the time they leave are actually HIV positive. Mm. The average life expectancy in the U.S., for a child who has been sex trafficked is seven years. Because they're dying of AIDS? Because they're dying of HIV and because they're dying of homicide. The, when, you, when you pair that with the average age of, I, I, I hesitate to say entry into sex work because it's, it's forced sexual rape. It's really serial child rape at its, at its worst. Um, the average age of entry is 12. So if you add 12 to 7, I'm no mental giant when it comes to math, but you end up with the realization that these children are dying pretty much by the time they can vote um, of HIV or homicide at the hands of their pimps, their traffickers, or their customers. Mm. So it is, in fact, a, a horrifying crime. Um, and it represents, like I said, the worst cross-sections cross of things that could happen to a person on this planet, as far as I'm concerned. I'm trying to figure out how many of these guys are, are real, you know, pedophiles versus how many of these men would be satisfied with an adult woman? Well, it's interesting because the advent of the Internet has made it really easy to order up whatever you want to mm -hmm. satisfy whatever your sexual tendencies are. So we're not helping law enforcement that the crime of child prostitution, which I hesitate to call it that for reasons I'll discuss later, but chi forced child sex work is no longer um, visible. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can drive down Harbor Boulevard in Anaheim. Yes, you can drive down some street in Compton or New York or Atlanta, and you can see children for sale for sex. But that's not even necessarily the majority of the problem anymore. You can stay in your house, in your library at night, after coming home from your job, checking your email and tucking in your two children, and order up a girl to a hotel room nearby for an hour or for a half of an evening, as simply and as easily as you would call up and order pizza. And... The guys that one thinks of as being perpetrators of this injustice are not who we teach our children to fear. They're not the guy in the trench coat that screams pedophile from a half mile away and is hanging out in front of your, in, you know, in front of your children's school. A recent study in Georgia found that uh, they were tracking online sex purchasing habits, and it was strikingly unsettling what they found. 47% of the men chose to proceed with the transaction after having been clearly informed that their victim was a minor. 47%. 47, almost half. Almost half. What was perhaps more interesting, especially to us in Orange County, because we all, we're all guilty of grouping things. I mean, it's, it's how we function. You cannot take in tens of thousands of pieces of data a day and not profile it, not categorize it. The psychologists will tell you we do that. We frown on it when it leads to racial profiling, but the fact of the matter is that's how our brains are wired to process information. And when you look at what's in the basket of who is the sex buyer, it was 42% middle class white in the suburbs with families. These are not the men that we teach our children to fear. These are not the scary pedophiles hanging around the elementary schoolyard. These are your neighbor, your boss, your colleague, who think they can get away with it, and in fact, most of the time, do. These are the people we drop our kids off with to have sleepovers and play Quite dates possibly. And, yeah. Absolutely. Right. And 
when you talk to some of the girls who have been trafficked, one of the recurring themes, of course, is that most of them have been sexually abused prior to the time they've been trafficked. There are very unsettling documentaries you can watch that have interviews with pimps or traffickers where the guys who are running the girls actually say things like, yes, the um, sexually abusive family members are doing me a a favor because the girls are trained by the time I get them. Horrifying statement, Mm -hmm. but, but actually true. And when you talk to the girls who have been victimized, they will tell you that their first incidents of sexual abuse did not take a day didn't take a month. It wasn't like somebody stole them away and locked them in a hotel room and repeatedly raped them for hours and hours. Sometimes the incidents of sexual abuse can take two minutes at the hands of a family member that you haven't seen in 20 years at a reunion in Michigan where you left your child in the den and went to flip the chicken that was on the barbecue. Mm-hmm. So not to freak all of the listeners out, but it, it really underscores the need to talk about safe limits Um, what is healthy touch, what is unhealthy touch with our girls and with our boys, because victims are not exclusively girls. There are lots and lots of boys who are trafficked as well um, at an early age so that they have the confidence and the knowledge to themselves escape situations that may arise on the horizon in their future, because the fact is we can't be with them all the time. You can't. I can't. Nobody can. Right, right. You are listening to Real People of Orange County on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your guest host, Marie Stone. We are talking with Lee Dundas today, general counsel of the A21 campaign about human trafficking. Do you think it would help if um, prostitution were legalized? What do you think that would do to this issue, at least in the U.S.? What the statistics show is that contrary to what many believe, which is, oh, if we legalize it, uh, it'll make it a less bad thing and you won't have trafficking going on. You won't have girls being sold into slavery and trafficked sexually against their will because it will be legal. Men can avail themselves of whatever they want legally. What studies show is that some of the worst trafficking regions are in the areas where prostitution has been legalized. Um, They have found in Europe that the areas where it is legal, it's become such a problem that they've actually had to, to backtrack from that. Ironically, the nation that has the best statistics on human trafficking in the European Union is Sweden. Hmm. And Sweden is run by a tiny majority of women in their government positions, which is quite interesting. And what they did a few years back is they criminalized the purchasing of sex and decriminalized the selling of sex. Hmm. And so basically, we're no longer arresting the women who are often victims and not voluntarily choosing to sexually sell their bodies on the street, but actually giving over all their money to their pimp or their trafficker. And we're saying, you, we're not going to arrest you anymore. You're the victim. You've been repeatedly raped. We're going to take you to a rape trauma center, which is what we should have been doing all along. And the men who are choosing to buy are now, as I understand it, having not lived in Sweden, of course, uh, basically treated to the equivalent of a U.S. felony. Mm-hmm. And it's made it a very, very inhospitable environment, not just for prostitution, but for traffickers. And as a result, there's virtually none of any of that going on in Sweden. Query if everybody would be in agreement with it, but it's an interesting statement on legalization versus going the other direction. Right, right. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were talking off air about this criminalization of the girls and this concept that you're criminalizing them for an act they cannot yet consent to, that yeah. they, they are too young to consent, and yet they're being 
prosecuted for it. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another pretty horrifying statistic that doesn't actually arise from Asia or Europe where we do a lot of our work, but arises right here in California, one of the most forward-thinking states and one of the most forward-thinking nations on this planet. In the last 10 years, between 2003 and 2012, we have arrested, according to the California Department of Justice, 4,251 children for the act of child prostitution. And the statement you made to me, which we were discussing off air, sort of leads us back to a discussion about definitions. How can one consent or sell that which they're not legally allowed to perform? How can you criminalize them when they're actually the victim? And what was more horrifying is when you plow through the statistics, you realize, I, and, and trust me, I, I started out my career at the Los Angeles DA's office interning and doing jury trials. I have many, many prosecutors, assistant U.S. attorneys and cops that I know and love and I call my friends. And you couldn't pay me enough money to do the job that they do every day. But of those 4,251 children that we arrested recently for child prostitution for being the victim, two of them were nine years old. And I look at a 17-year-old in very high heels when I hop off the freeway going to USC to go into an alumni event. And I say, yes, I can understand how a law enforcement officer could mistake a 17-year-old with her face painted in high heels in certain clothing for a consenting adult. But I have never, ever, ever gone to my daughter's third grade class because she is nine right now and looked at any of her friends and thought in a million years that I could mistake them as willing consenting adults and arrest them book them, put them in the back of a squad car, and take them and basically, I mean, a lot of the survivors that you've talked to have been strip searched and booked for having been serially raped as children. And it is, it is a very sad statement on um, how, we're, how we're defining the problem. And my guess, and this is just me speaking, not on behalf of any organization, is that if we stopped calling it child prostitution, mm -hmm. and we referred to it as what it really is, which is serial child rape, mm -hmm. and we told every teacher and every cop and every DA and every architect and every parent and every, everybody you could think of in California, we're no longer even allowed to use this term. We're going to call it serial child rape. If we had done that, I don't think that we would have accidentally or not accidentally arrested 4,200 children over the last 10 years. I think by calling it what it is, it would have demanded the penalties on the Johns, which is also a disservice to call a serial child rapist a John. Um, I think it would have really brought to the fore the truth and the reality behind the crime and made it very, very apparent who was the victim in this equation and who deserved to be behind bars. Right. So let's talk about the concept of John, because uh, another subject we were talking about off air, the, the language that you use around this is very telling and how dangerous it is to give such a benign name uh, to, to these men. It is, it is incredibly dangerous because it immunizes and distances us in our perceptions from the act, and it allows the person buying the sex to do the same. He's not thinking of himself as a serial child rapist or a serial rapist. Uh, we're not thinking of it in those terms, and neither perhaps are law enforcement. And so when they go to pick up these, these sex purchasers, um, they are letting them off. In Boston, a recent study came out and showed that we were arresting on the ratio of women to men in this equation, 
statistically about 11 to 1. Hmm. For every guy arrested, hmm. we've got 11 women who are being arrested for essentially being a victim. And that is a severe problem, as is how we deal with it. You know, Prop 35 was passed last year by an 81 percent um, overwhelming majority in California, 83 percent here in Orange County. Go Orange County folk. Um, and it drastically stiffened the sentences on sex purchasers and particularly those who would uh, avail themselves a child. And I think it was long overdue and very much needed. And I think it's the right direction that we should be heading, that we should be calling it what it is at the end of the day and, and sentencing it accordingly. Because when you talk to the sex buyers, as Melissa Farley, who's a PhD who does a lot of research in this area up in Northern California has, what she has found when she interviews these guys is a lot of them say, if I had to do any jail time, I wouldn't do it. Hmm. Not a jail sentence, but even an hour or two in a holding tank. So when we do a sting and we let the guys off with nothing or a slap on the wrist or a ticket that they can buy their way out of with John school, as if you were going to traffic school for having sped. John school. I love that. Mm. John school. Isn't that special? We're, we're treating serial child rapists in many instances or men who would buy sex with willing adult partners in other instances. We're, we're treating that as we would a rolling stop. Right. And you can argue that a guy who's with a consenting female and engaging in prostitution on a sliding scale of how we should handle this is not as evil or as morally repugnant or as in need of sanction as the guy who's buying a nine-year-old on the street. But I think at the end of the day, when we're letting all of that go without even addressing it, we really are becoming part of the problem as opposed to being part of the solution. You know why these guys are so afraid of going to jail is they're afraid they're going to be raped, right? (laughs) (laughs) And studies show that that does in fact happen. (laughs) Right, right. That's what they're afraid of. Unbelievable. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Real People of Orange County. My guest today is Lee Dundas, general counsel for the A21 campaign. We are talking about the ever-increasing problem of human trafficking and um, sex trafficking. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about, I, I always think that people believe this is somebody else's problem, that these are runaway girls, these are poor girls, these are you know, unwanted girls and that this is, if they're Asian girls and this is somebody else's problem that we don't have to worry about. So let's talk about a couple of personal stories that you shared with me, one on, you know, kind of stories up close and personal that you knew of where that's not the case, that these are well-educated, middle-class, upper-middle-class women who fell into the, fell into this trap. Yeah, the um, the perception, of course, is that this is another country's problem and another person's problem, and it could never happen to my child or my friend in my own backyard here in California. But the fact is, it can, and it does happen. Um, I'm pretty good friends with a, a person by the name of Carissa Phelps. She is a double JD MBA UCLA law grad, UCLA business school grad. She grew up in Central California. And when she was a young girl, like preteen, early teens, she uh, had, I'm not quite sure what the family circumstances were, but they were sufficient that she felt that it was a good idea to run away once in a while. And she was in and out of foster care. And on one of those episodes, she found a girl, another girl who had been badly beaten and hurt. And she felt sorry for her because Carissa has quite a big heart. And she took this woman back to her room that she had rented for herself in a motel. Very resourceful kid, Carissa was. And unfortunately, the woman was a prostitute. And the pimp named Icy was following them. And so at the end of the day, 
you had two girls now under this pimp's control. And she ended up under the control of this person for some period of time until law enforcement intervened. Unfortunately, they did not intervene in the way that we would hope one would one would today. They booked her. They put her in the back of a squad car. When you hear Carissa speak, because now she has quite the educational platform by which she educates law enforcement officers um, on how they should be doing this. <laughs> Good. What is the ideal way to be doing this? Good. Um, one of the things that I, that I really enjoyed listening to her say uh, during one of the trainings last year was, if you haven't sat in the back of your own squad car, you should do so. It's a scary experience for anybody of any age to sit in the back of a squad car where there's no door handles and no locks and no way to get out. And there she is, a kid, 12, 13, 14, whatever she was, uh, being treated and booked and arrested as if she were an adult. Hmm. So Carissa um, is a stunning example of both how it shouldn't have gone and how it can go even after how, after it's gone completely off the rails. Because she found a person who believed in her in the foster care system, who thought she was talented, who thought she was bright, who did everything correct from a psychological perspective. And she came to believe in herself. And she is now educating the world on how we should handle this problem. She's affiliated with a woman by the name of Rachel Sowers, who has a, uh, an educational awareness curriculum uh, training that she rolls out to junior high and high school students in California and elsewhere. Rachel was also trafficked. She does not fit the perception of who you would think would be trafficked. She grew up, as I understand it, in the San Marino area, Mm. um, nice socioeconomic neighborhood. One of her parents was an attorney. I think the other one perhaps was a minister or something like that. And she went away to college, which, of course, all of our children are going to do one day. And she met a very nice man who offered her a modeling job. And if you meet Rachel, you will understand why that occurred. She's a beautiful young lady. And told her all of the things that we all want to hear when we're young and scared and away at college, and had her fill out a W-4 form, Hmm. which had her social security number and her home address and all of the other particulars that are, of course, on that form. And so by the time it turned into a trafficking situation, she had the same response that many across the world have, which is, I'm not going to do this. I'd rather die than do this. And what traffickers do, whether they're outside of Emory University in in the United States or whether they're outside of a brothel in the back alleys of India is they say to a man typically you will do this because if you don't here's a picture of your mother here's a picture of your younger sister your brother and I will hurt them or I will kill them if you don't comply with my demands and you can see when you start to play through the psychology of how this occurs, how somebody who you would have thought perhaps would have been immune to that because they grew up in Southern California with all the best educational advantages suddenly finds themselves in a situation that nobody could have ever foreseen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very interesting because when you start listening to the sex trafficking survivor stories, they're the same. Rachel's story of how she ended up in that position is virtually identical to the stories I hear when I go to Thailand and when I go to Laos and when I go to the Thai-Malay border and I talk to girls who are in the brothels. If they didn't know that they were going to end up in slavery and they weren't sort of given the heads up prior to that, what they always say is, no, I'm not going to do this. And what the trafficker always comes back with is, yes, you will, and I'm going to blackmail you until you do. Mm. Mm. You introduced me to a phrase that I'd never heard before, which is a Romeo Romeo boyfriend. Is that what yeah, it was? Yeah, there's, there's a number of different um, labels or handles that people who work in the trafficking industry have given 
uh, the traffickers and that sort of denote the types of trafficking tricks and schemes that they use to to get their victims into the fold, as it were. And you've got the gorilla pimp who just kidnaps a girl and beats her. And you end up with a girl who's got Stockholm Syndrome and is beaten down and thoroughly broken and has experienced massive, unthinkable violence. And I think that that is perhaps the thing that we're all most familiar with Mm -hmm. in terms of what's in our basket of what human trafficking looks like. But there's actually something that is far more insidious and far more dangerous for the girls in Orange County that are heading off to college or in high school. And that is the Romeo pimp. And in America, it refers to perhaps a teenage guy, perhaps a college-age guy, young man, who comes on the scene. He's usually an older guy, wants to date the 16-year-old, very good manners often, very nice, showers the girl with love and attention. Maybe she's a bit of a loner. Maybe she's a bit shy. And the woman, the girl in this instance, thinks that he is her boyfriend. And that's from all outward appearances, both to the family and the girl, what it seems like. And at some point, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's three months into the scene, the situation changes. And he starts to use typical mind control stuff and domestic violence type stuff. And she gets more and more fearful and more and more beholden to him. And suddenly he's saying things like, you're going to go into the back of my car and I'm going to sell you to my friends or to these other people and I'm going to keep the money. And you've got a situation that went from being a standard boyfriend-girlfriend scene to suddenly being a sex trafficking scene Mm -hmm. in the period of a week or a month or three months. And it happens all the time. It happens to girls that the A21 campaign is to come into contact with here in Southern California and across the United States. And if you talk to the other NGOs and nonprofits who do this work here, it is exceedingly common. Are there typical traits that these men look for when they're when they're looking for these women? Are there traits in the women? I mean, certainly not blaming the victims here, but are there things that make women more susceptible that um, that attract these men? Well, I think the two things that probably make women or girls the most susceptible when you talk to the sex trafficking survivors is far and away in excess of 90% of them have been sexually abused as a child, one. And uh, two, Many of them have been in and out of foster care or had other family environmental scenes that were similar and that there wasn't a two-person stable family of origin, so they were being bounced around a bit. Those are the recurring hallmark defining characteristics, if you were, of sex trafficking survivors here in the United States. That aside, it could be any of our children. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they prey on shy ones? Yes. Do they prey on pretty ones? Yes. Do they prey on girls who are insecure? Yes. And what girl isn't insecure when she's 13 or 16 or a freshman at college? Mm-hmm. Do they prey on smart girls? Absolutely. Some of the smartest people I have ever met. And it's not like you and I didn't run in some fairly <laughs> fairly decent circles. Um are the women I've talked to who've been sex trafficked. So beyond that, can you cookie cutter define a mold of what what puts somebody at risk? Not really. I know because I was going over your notes and it said uh, they hang out at movie theaters and malls. Yes. And, and I'm like, that, that's where I drop her off to go you yeah. know, with her friends. It's, um, it's frightening how many girls are recruited from malls. And that's not to say that you should never let your child go to a mall. But a lot, lot, lot of girls meet an older guy, a Romeo pimp, who is sitting in a mall looking to recruit. They get paid when they bring these victims uh, to wherever they're going. Mm. And they're looking for young girls, and they start having, you know, they exchange phone numbers, which we want our children to be able to have normal two-way communication conversations with 
other similarly situated boys. I mean, right. you don't want to just lock your girl up in the back room and never let her out. Yes, so, I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe yes, after I this do. show you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're, you're hoping that your child is developing healthy relationships with people of both sexes. And so she gives out her phone number and he starts texting her and and there you are. And maybe it's just a healthy budding romance and maybe he's a Romeo pimp. And really, I think the key takeaway from what I've seen, from, from what I've discovered in talking to some of these victims, both in Asia and here, is you need to educate the girl. Going back to that earlier notion we discussed that you cannot be with them 24-7, much as we, of course, would like to be with them 24-7, at some point they're going to be out of our sight. And if starting in third grade, they know what human trafficking is and they know what these guys look for, and that these guys hang out in certain areas and that a guy that is asking for their phone number may not be good news. And if you're keeping a very clear and open channel of communication in with your child, you have a much, much higher, I think, chance of avoiding these situations than if none of those things are in place. You had a really healthy way of talking to your nine-year-old daughter about this, I thought. And uh, and I want to share that with our listeners, too, because she was curious what sex trafficking is. And you, you wonder at what age you can expose them to these ideas. And you had a great way of doing that. Yeah, I'd like to take credit for that great way of doing it. But actually, it was my daughter <laughs> who answered her own question. But I, I will tell the story because I think it uh, ironically led to a really interesting handle for the questions because they are hard questions. We were traveling through Asia. And we were on an AirAsia flight, a very crowded in-coach AirAsia flight. And my daughter knew I'd been doing some work in this, in this realm last year. And she looked at me, as children are wont to do when they're bored on a flight, and chose one of the moments on the airplane that was probably the quietest, as children are wont to do when they're going to ask you a hard question, and said in her crystal clear voice when there was absolutely no background noise, which never occurs on a flight in Asia, Mommy, what's sex trafficking? And for my part, I would like to say, having been working in this field a little while, that I had a perfectly wonderful response to that. And instead, I looked at my husband over the top of my child's head with the help me, help me eyes. And my husband, of course, being being a husband, looked at me and said, that's the lawyer's daughter talking. Right. <laughs> and I thought, oh, dear me, he's going to be of no use here. So... I thought I, I did a really good job and I gave the human trafficking, the labor trafficking definition. And I said, well, honey, in certain places in the world, not so much in America, but some of the places we're traveling to now, they have these factories and they make little kids your age, some, some younger, some older, work all day long, 18 hours a day with very little food and they don't make any money and they don't get to go to school and they never get to go outside. It's all day long, 18 hours a day. And they make them make things like t-shirts and shoes and bracelets and plastic wear and whatnot. And I really thought that they I work had, for Nike. Yeah. No, <laughs> I thought I'd punted and done a fantastic job on the sex trafficking part of it. And my daughter said, Oh, okay. And then 10 seconds later, she said, So how does the sex part factor in? And I went, "Uh Oh, I'm not off the hook yet. And I leaned over and said, we'll talk about this later after we get off the airplane, honey, as all mothers have probably been known to say in a, in a pinch. And then another 10 seconds went by and she said, Is it like a forced date? And I said, yes, honey, it's like a forced date. And bless her heart, she came up with an answer that was age appropriate, that allowed her to understand what mommy does when mommy leaves her behind and goes to Asia for a week. 
and that was just the right amount of information for her understanding at that point. Would I describe it the same way if she were 13 and had a full understanding of what sex and love and romance and dating and marriage is? No, I would probably go into more details. But the good news on this whole thing is it's not just the parents' problem at this point. Schools are getting on board with educating our youth about this topic. Um, It's up before most states' legislators and legislative bodies Laws are being passed that say, yes, the schools have to address this issue of sexual abuse and sex trafficking in a lot of cases. And that is one of the reasons that A21 this year, earlier in January, released an educational curriculum called Bodies Are Not Commodities. And it's being picked up by high schools and uh, departments of education throughout the United States. And it's a five-part series that basically, in again, an age-appropriate way, educates our youth on what trafficking is, what it looks like using first hand real people experiences that they can relate to and really gets them up to speed on modern day slavery as opposed to just learning about Abraham Lincoln 1700-1800 slavery and I highly recommend it Um, anybody can take it online but I think it is definitely the wave of the future and it 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 takes a lot of the onus of responsibility off our shoulders as being the only person who's purveying this this educational information to our children. Right, right. And I was going to mention, there's a great book that we stumbled across, and I think you knew of it as well, called The Gift of Fear. Yes. And there are a lot of great tips and tricks in there about yes. that, that niggling feeling you have in the back of your brain that tells you something is not quite right, and mm-hmm. I can't put words to it, and I want to be polite, and I don't want to be rude to this adult. But he doesn't seem kosher to me for whatever reason. And and learning, teaching your kids to listen to that amorphous feeling that comes over them, uh, the gift of fear. And then through that book, we became um, aware and uh, in chatting with you, we became aware of um, an organization called Impact Personal Safety, which is up in Santa Monica. That's right. And um, our daughter will be taking a course there in Santa Monica this summer. We're going to drive her up there for two week uh, little course on how That's to, awesome. How to avoid these things. Cause. Yeah, yeah. Impact has been around for many years. I actually took a class from them, a number of classes from them back when I was in college. Mm. And it was very interesting. What they realized when it comes to the subject of rape uh, is that women and men are attacked differently. So men who are intent on doing other men harm typically square off face-to-face. They telegraph the fact that they're going to strike the other individual by doing a big flying roundhouse punch. And the other guy knows it's coming. He can see it. He can feel it. It's, it's not a shock. It's not a surprise. He's not being blindsided. What they discovered when they, reali- when they started analyzing how women are attacked by men is that men take them down from behind to the ground and pin them. And immediately, 99% of what most martial arts systems teach becomes completely irrelevant Hmm. when you're on the ground being pinned down. And the biggest testament to the fact that that was true, and one of the reasons Impact got its start, is they had, I think it was like an award-winning instructor of some martial arts regime who had been raped. And they all went, how could this happen? Well, how this can happen is you're not left a lot of options when you wake up pinned down in your apartment or attacked in a parking lot. So what Impact did is it dissected all the best practices from all the different martial arts and figured out what moves were most useful for a woman in an about-to-be-raped situation. Hmm. And they also realized that we're never going to win an arm wrestling match with a guy because men have 30% more upper body strength than women do. So they said, all right, let's use the legs. We can actually at least hold our own with our legs and in many instances 
kick a guy's butt with our legs. Mm -hmm. So they started using leg-driven strikes. And the other differentiating factor about the impact system is they don't train you on a pull-your-punches basis because what happens when you're in the real situation is if you've trained to pull your punch and not follow through and not strike full force, when push comes to shove and the actual bad event happens to you in real life, that's what you that's what you defer to. That's what you resort to. So impact basically pads the heck out of their instructors with like gym mat thick padding and football helmets covered by amazing amounts of foam. And they teach you as the woman or man or kid in the class to strike full force against the guy's head or other sensitive regions. And you are never taught to do anything less than a full force knockout strike. And you don't stop until the guy has been knocked out. And for that reason, it is probably one of the most successful um, defense schools in the nation. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Just to bring this home, uh, the same week that we got back in touch with you and we were talking about this topic, there was a man up at the middle school in Laguna Beach who attempted on two occasions to pick up boys. So just so all of our parents know, this is not a girl-only problem. Uh, they have not caught him. But uh, two occasions, he tried to get boys into his car by telling them that he wanted them to help him hand out flyers. And the boys ran, and he started screaming at them, get in my car with force. And they got away uh, on both occasions. Them. However, you know, Laguna Beach, upscale nice community in in the hills away from downtown uh targeting boys targeting young boys it's mm. it's ever this is everybody's problem it really truly is everybody's problem, everybody's problem. Yeah. you're listening to real people of orange county on kuci 88.9 fm in irvine i'm your guest host marie stone i am with lee dundas general counsel at the a21 group we are um uh, time goes way too fast. So I want to turn our attention to Asia, where you do uh, the bulk of your work. And the other disturbing factor are parents who are selling their daughters into this. So these these aren't girls that are, you know, attacked on the streets or runaways. These are parents at the ages of two and three and five who are selling their daughters into the trade. And then, and I also want to talk about the um, the way you're going after these men and the... the uh, the bank's role in all of this. So let's, Absolutely. yeah, let's turn our attention to Asia and uh, and the problems there and how those problems are maybe a little bit more unique than the U.S. Yeah, the problems in Asia are indeed a little different than you see either in the States or in Europe. Uh, when A21 first opened in Europe, in Greece and Bulgaria in 2008, they were dealing primarily with survivors who were teen and up, young women, girls, who had been trafficked. And that's, by and large, what you see in Eastern Europe. You see Roma Gypsy, you see women from Moldova, remote areas where there's not a lot of options, who are promised by a recruiter who comes into their village, we're going to give you papers and we're going to make it all legal and we're going to take you to a really high-end restaurant in an island in Greece and you're going to be an upscale cocktail waitress or server. And the women get there and their papers are confiscated and they're bait and switched and they're forced into a brothel and that's pretty much the end all be all. When Christine Kane, who was the founder of A21, I don't, I don't think I told you about the story from, about the African girl. I don't think mm. we've talked about that. No. I don't even think I told you off, off air. Um, she was talking to some of the girls when she was researching rolling out A21 and in the formative stages of doing this. She was talking to one of the girls who had been trafficked. It was a young woman who had come from Africa. She had been shipped by shipping container overseas to Turkey 
with 59 other women. When she arrived in Istanbul, the oxygen canister in the shipping container had failed. Half of the girls were already dead. Mm. They were taken out and they were placed into apartments where they were seasoned or groomed, which is a euphemism. And I'm not a fan of euphemisms. I think it detracts from people knowing about the topic and actually doing something about the topic. They were basically repeatedly raped until they were broken and in agreement and complacent and compliant. At that point, they were put on rubber dinghies and they were sent from Turkey to toward Athens. Unfortunately, when they got within striking distance of the Greek shoreline, the Coast Guard moved in. The traffickers, for their part, did not want to be caught with the contraband, and so they dumped them, the girls, overboard, which was one heck of a problem because all of these girls came from villages in Africa and had never seen an open body of water. They didn't even have running water, most of them, so of course none of them could swim. And of those that were dropped overboard, only about five survived. Now, the inspirational part of the story is that once they got to Greece and they were sold and put in a brothel, eventually Greek law enforcement found them, moved in, did a raid, and five of these girls were recovered. And those are the girls that Christine Kane was talking to when she decided, yes, this is something we need to do. And some of the girls, those girls ended up being some of the first women and, and girls that were helped by A21 in Eastern Europe. We now have two houses there, a transitional facility and a shelter that works very hard to, um, to get these girls back to a state of normalcy and has great success in doing so. It is a horrible crime, but what's most amazing is these women are not broken when you're talking to them. They are horribly abused and they bear the scars of that abuse emotionally physically medically but they are resilient they are resourceful and when you give them a little bit of the love and attention and granting of of humanness that they deserve for lack of a better word they spring up like daisies in the spring and they become wonderful whole people who go on to have children that are healthy and take care of their children well and become their own little beacon of light in the anti-trafficking movement. So that was A21's initial roots, as it were. When I started talking to A21 uh, last year, they were contemplating doing work in Asia. And I mentioned, from my knowledge of trafficking, that we were going to be dealing with a substantially different demographic in Asia, a much, much younger demographic, uh, that when we did these rescues, they were not going to be teen women that we could vocationally rehab necessarily, but they were going to be seven, nine, ten-year-olds who basically needed parents for a good number of years before they could be released back into society. Um, So that's the first challenge. And the other challenge is... In Asia, unlike in Europe, most of the families, a lot, I shouldn't say most, a lot of the families and a lot of the villages are complicit. And the girls are not bait and switched. They aren't shoved into a shipping container. They aren't told they're going to be a cocktail waitress. They aren't shocked when they get to the end point. They know they're going to a brothel. And when you talk to them, they say, the decision was mine. And when I was talking to a girl in February in a border town in Southeast Asia, who had hailed from a a village in a communist country in the Mountain Hill Tribe area. I said, did you know the type of work you were going to be doing when you got here? And she said, yes. And I said, tell me, tell me, basically, just just tell me, like, how did this basically come come to transpire? And she said, well, you know, we're very poor. 
And my dad had had a farm machine accident and was disabled. And my mother had had a stroke. And we have siblings. And one of them, I think, had cerebral palsy. He'd been deprived of oxygen at birth. And they were essentially starving. And my mother looked at me and said, you don't have to go. Mm. And that was kind mm. of where the story ended. And, and my husband and I have talked about this because when we were in Cambodia, traveling with my daughter, who was in the boat at the time, a tiny canoe pulled alongside our boat on this floating lake where the poorest of the poor live in Cambodia. It's called Tonle Sap Lake. And a woman pointed at her two-year-old little girl standing on this bark canoe and said, thousand dollar, you take? Mm. And if you had asked me more than a year ago, could I ever conceive of a situation where any parent would sell their child into slavery, especially sexual slavery, I would have said no. But honestly, Marie, it's a choice that I cannot fathom. Do you sell your child into slavery? We all say, oh, my gosh, no, I could never do that. That's what every single parent listening to this show and anybody you ask in Orange County or anywhere is probably going to say who's in a Western first world country. What if that means that your entire family is going to starve to death? What do you do then? Mm. And so these girls, these poor girls in these in these brothel towns, one of the towns that we that we visited that I visited in February is comprised of 140 brothels. That's all there is. There is no other industry in town. Um, And are they sad? Yes. Do they Mm. want to do what they're doing? No. Who wants to be serially raped by foreign or native sex pedophiles nightly? Nobody does. But do they smile through their tears when they say my sister can go to school now? And nobody's starving in my family. And some of the money that the trafficker is making off my back and off my horrible acts every night is going home to my village. Are they actually proud of that? Yes. And to me, what that speaks of is we need drastically to hook up microfinance options with these girls. These women want to make a different type of living. And they can. They do beautiful handiwork. They do beautiful craft work. They do beautiful sewing. And if some buyer from Nordstrom's or Macy's internationally or nationally came through and said, I will buy the bracelets that this village makes, these women would have an option on the table that's different than the option they have now, which is starving to death or selling their child to a brothel. You have to wonder if they're forming the same sort of attachment bonds to their children that you would here, because knowing that you're pregnant, perhaps with a girl, and that this is some percentage likelihood of her fate, you would prevent yourself, I would think, from forming any bond or attachment to her from birth. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how you psychologically do this, but it's it's very complex psychologically. Both, I think, on behalf of the parents who are put in the position that we're talking about, and the children who end up in brothel towns. What I will say is that. There is an increasing need, I I can't really call it need in good conscience, but for lack of a better term, to supply child virgins in certain regions like in the Mekong Delta areas because um, foreign, largely foreign sex pedophiles and native ones believe that they can avoid contracting AIDS by having sex with a virgin child, which is, of course, a fallacy and a myth because most of the time the virgins they're buying, unfortunately, though they may be 7, 9, or 13 years old, they're not actually virgins. They've already been sold once or twice or 10 times. And secondly, they think, oh, if I all have AIDS. Yeah. Yeah. And they also think, oh, if I already have AIDS, I can cure myself by having sex with a virgin. So you get this increasing demand to produce young female children. And there are entire villages in Cambodia. When you hear other nonprofits talk on documentaries, some of the the heads of those nonprofits say, yeah, I'll sit in on a conversation with these women. And they will say, oh, you're lucky you had a girl child. Why? Because if times get rough, you have options you don't have with a boy child. 
it's frightening, it's sad, but again, the answer um, is not just to let it go. The answer is to get some very cost-effective and for the tune of like $200 American dollars, we could start getting buyers and Macy's in touch with these women in these villages and giving them an industry that doesn't involve the sale of sex by their children. So your organization, we're drawing down on our time, but I want to get all of this out. Your organization is targeting big banks. Um, as the Actually, perfect. one of the other organizations, and A21, I believe, but uh, one of the other organizations in Asia is targeting, perhaps coming at this problem in a slightly different fashion. The, the fact of the matter is, as we mentioned earlier, it's a $32 billion a year industry. The traffickers are not keeping all of these profits in their mattresses. They're just not. The monies are the fruit of illegal acts. And these monies are going into the world's banks as well as other institutions. And for the lawyers in the audience, everybody knows a little bit about money laundering, but it's taking dirty money, money from a crime, and creating the appearance of legitimacy by putting it into a bank or a financial institution. Well, banks have a duty to not become a knowing participant in this. So there is a a way in which a lot of NGOs in the area think that we can use the existing anti-money laundering framework to crack down on traffickers in a way that doesn't involve long drawn out prosecutions and getting police departments that may not have the know-how or the ability financially to do prosecutions in their countries on traffickers, really coming at these guys from a different from a different angle that will probably be equally stunning because you need you need money at the end of the day and if you don't need it you want it and if you suddenly don't have money because Uh, it's not available to you because it's the fruit of money laundering. Well, does that hamstring their operations? My bet is it it would and it does, yeah. Right. And if people are interested in getting involved further, learning more about this, where are there places they can go online or in person? Absolutely. A lot of the nonprofits have their own um, internet space, and A21 Campaign is no exception. You can go to www.a21campaign.org, and it will bring you up to speed in a New York second on the problem and how you can help. There is a national anti-trafficking hotline that every child and every parent should know. It's very easy to remember. Polaris runs it. It is 888-3737-888. If you think you saw somebody trafficked, if something's happening in Laguna Beach like you described earlier, if you're concerned that your teenage daughter is depressed and has a boyfriend that's older and maybe he's a Romeo pimp, you can call that line and they'll help you get answers. And remind us once again of the campaign online, Bodies Are Not Commodities. Yeah, it's called Bodies Are Not Commodities, and you can sign up for it at the A21Campaign.org. If you have any further questions, you can also call me, Lee Dundas. I'm general counsel for A21 Campaign in Costa Mesa. And um, I would definitely encourage both parents and children to really do some, some soul searching and some education on this topic because it is a timely topic. And it's a pressing topic, and it's definitely one where an ounce of prevention, you know the saying? Mm-hmm. Yep. Better than a pound of cure. Absolutely. Lee Dundas, thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure. That is all the time we have for today. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio coming next on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Kimberly Martin will be right back here with you next Wednesday, Thursday. It's Thursday. <laughs> next Thursday at 4 p.m. So thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day.